Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. As gas prices continue to rise, OPEC plus nations meeting in Vienna, brushing aside Washington and Europe's pleas to increase production, decided to do the opposite and cut output to drive up prices, a move that is designed to undermine President Biden and Democrats as they head into a hotly contested midterm election. Norway has promised to increase capacity uh, of oil and gas to address surging demand and address Europe's energy shortfalls. Ukrainian forces continue to claw back occupied territory as the administration denied Kiev access to longer range missiles as a story leaked that U.S. intelligence uh, suspects that Ukrainian authorities were involved in the approval of the assassination of Daria Dugan, the daughter of Russian ultranationalist. Uh, and Putin ally Alexander Dugin, uh, who was killed in a car bombing uh, in Moscow in August. Increasingly, officials in Washington fret about the need to avoid cornering Putin uh, and the need to avoid World War III, uh, a theme that the Russian leader has picked up on to fan concerns uh, about why he shouldn't be uh, cornered when he's getting his butt kicked in uh, Ukraine. North Korea tested more ballistic missiles, and for the first time in five years, one of the weapons flew over Japan, sparking air raid warnings. Uh, the weapon uh, has a range to be able to hit Guam. Uh, this, as a South Korean missile test fails, uh, the countdown toward the coronation of Xi Jinping as uh, to another term as China's leader continues, and demonstrations in Iran uh, are getting worse. Joining us today to discuss all of this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, who holds the Asia-Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute uh, Think Tank and somebody who joined us earlier in the week. So uh, special thanks, uh, Patrick, for joining us. Uh, again, uh, Michael Herson of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, who joins us from uh, sunny California, having gotten up extra early for that. So special thanks to you as well. Uh, uh, former Pentagon uh, Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is now a Affiliated with the Center for a New American uh, Security, who also is the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts podcast, a must for anybody who's interested in uh, transatlantic uh, uh, relations, uh, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who uh, counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies among his many affiliations, and very special thanks to Jim and Dove for just being Jim and Dove uh, today. Everybody, welcome. Thanks very much for joining us. Uh, and before we get started, uh, Leonardo DRS sponsors uh, our global coverage. Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report. And Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage uh, and our coverage of the Air and Space Force Association's uh, annual airspace cyber conference and trade show was sponsored by Leonardo DRS which along with Safran are sponsoring our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting next week. Uh, and check out our two weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, with our contributing editor, Chris Cavus, and our producer, Chris Cervello, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, and the downlink uh, with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. Everybody, thanks very much. Uh, Gamar Tova uh, to uh, our Jewish listeners. Uh, Michael? We ha have the CR as predicted, as you predicted, uh, sagely uh, uh, last uh, week past, but now we're in a recess period, but it's going to be a very messy uh, lame duck uh, session, uh, in part because there is so much legislation that's still sort of uh, waiting determination that it will impact national security. Give the audience a sense of what's actually on the, on the agenda when lawmakers come back, because it's going to be a furious 
right? I mean, not only do we have to get an NDAA and appropriations, you know, there's a lot of other legislation that has to get passed as well. And we're going to talk about the OPEC matter in, in a minute, right? Which means that there could be even more legislation that's in front of lawmakers. You're correct. And uh, these uh, all these legislative initiatives really uh, crowd a very small uh, calendar. Uh, as you know, Congress is out of session until November 14th, uh, except for one day in the Senate on October 11th, where just a handful of senators will come just to begin debate on the NDAA, but debate over amendments and final passage will not happen until after election, if it happens at all. Uh, and when Congress does come back on the 14th, they're really only scheduled to be here for 17 days right now. Uh, I think they'll have to stay in much longer than that, although there's not much more time uh, until Christmas after the 17 days. Uh, and, it, and it's a crowded calendar. I mean, for example, uh, they're gonna have to take up uh, hurricane relief. Uh, right now, Senator Rick Scott wants the Senate to come back from recess to vote on a supplemental appropriations for Florida. That's not gonna happen. So it means they're gonna have to vote on it during the lame duck, either as a freestanding bill or tack it on to the uh, omnibus at the end of the year. Uh, the Electoral Count Act, which we've talked about before, you know, was passed the House. The Senate's gonna have to pass their version. Uh, the Senate will not swallow the House version. So the House is gonna have to decide if they're gonna pass the Senate version or spend time uh, trying to conference that bill. Uh, marriage equality still is gonna find time on the Senate floor. As you know, it says pass the House too. Um, there's a big push for tax extenders legislation to be done during the lame duck. Democrats are pushing hard to revive the child tax credit, uh, but Republicans at the same time want to revive a tax benefit for businesses that allow them to immediately write off their research expenses. And this is something the defense industry is pushing hard for. Uh, Democrats may push again for some legislation to get aid for COVID and monkeypox relief. Uh, Manchin's probably going to re revive his permitting legislation to try and get that done. And with all this happening, in addition to the student loan stuff that we talked about in a previous podcast, uh, this could accelerate the, the uh, cliff for the debt limit and could force a debt limit vote sooner than people think. So there's a lot of things that are going to crowd out NDAA and could crowd out getting an omnibus done, uh, omnibus appropriations bill as well. Uh, and NDAA uh, you know, we talked about them possibly adding things onto it, which Schumer tried to do last year, uh, right. which slowed it down uh, already. We have Senator Bill Cassidy and Senator Dick Durbin saying that they're going to try and add provisions of what they call the Inform Act to the NDAA, uh, which is a bill that cracks down on the proliferation of counterfeit and stolen goods. Uh, Durbin and uh, Senator Roger Marshall announced that they're going to introduce their Credit Card Competition Act uh, as an amendment to the NDAA. So there's a lot of things that have nothing to do with the NDAA that really could end up slowing it down as well. Very uh, quickly on the political horse race aspect of it, right? I mean, you know, there was a sense that Democrats might be able to hold both houses. Uh, you know, there's less optimism, very good jobs numbers today, right? Empl unemployment down, a uh, lot of new job creation, but then again, inflation still uh, a problem and a challenge. And now obviously gas prices, and we're going to get to OPEC in a second. I mean, any any sense on how the, the political dynamics are involving and what, what you've been hearing from members? Well, I mean, the political dynamics seem to be you know, changing almost by the day. Uh, but, you know, what's been consistent is that people feel that the House is going to go Republican. It's just a question of by how many seats. Uh, some project a very small majority for the Republicans, as much as five to 10 seats. Some are uh, projecting a much larger majority. I mean, we, we, there's so many factors out there that we don't see. We also see a lot of new voter registration out there, and those people aren't included in the polling data. I mean, for example, we right. do see in Pennsylvania women outpacing men four to one. That, I think, will have a serious impact on the congressional races there, um, House and Senate. So the Senate is, is really too close to call. I think people feel it'll either stay 50-50 or go 51-49 uh, for the Democrats or for the Republicans. The Republicans have a challenge in many of the candidates that won their primaries 
really are not within the mainstream and will not appeal to middle of the road independent voters. Interesting indeed. And obviously we're not the any uh, any additional NDAA or uh, appropriations uh, stuff uh, that we need to talk about, and and actually more importantly, I mean, what's your sentiment about whether or not we're going to get a debt ceiling increase, uh, right? I mean, almost all our self-imposed roads to ruin. Uh, look, I, I think that if the debt limit increase came up in this year in this Congress, it would pass. Um, I think if the debt ceiling comes up next year, next Congress, it will pass. I just can't imagine that they let the default on the U.S. government's debt, but it will become an incredibly painful exercise. And remember, the last time the Republicans made this painful exercise many years ago, uh, the U.S. credit limit was downgraded from AAA to AA, and it's still there. And I think we would sure. risk that uh, downgrade uh, yet again. Um, I do think, and I think you plan to ask. Well, I mean, about it was this. it was right. I mean, but I was driven by the Freedom Caucus. It did look like we were going to default, and we got right. the Budget Control Act as a result. Correct. And I think that uh, the Freedom Caucus will drive this again. Uh, and what the outcome will be, no one seems to know. So I'm frankly hopeful that the Democrats do take up the debt ceiling in this Congress and don't let it go into next Congress. But um, that, that really remains to be seen. Uh, I do think, you know, when you mentioned you know, impact on elections, I do think that the decision by uh, OPEC um, to cut uh, production by two million barrels a day definitely has an impact on the election. Uh, you know, I think that Republicans will seize on the fact that oil prices are, um, are going up and gas prices going up. And this also will be inflationary. And Democrats are outraged by the decision. And I think rightfully so. Um, and we saw, I think, a lot of legislation now is being introduced. Uh, Congressman Tom Malinowski wants to introduce legislation uh, to mandate the renewal of U.S. troops and missile defense systems from the region. Uh, Senator Blumenthal, who's a senior Democrat on the Armed Services Committee, uh, wants the U.S. to consider uh, cuts in military assistance uh, to Saudi Arabia. Uh, Senator Dick Durbin, who's the whip in the Senate uh, for the Democrats, says it's time for our foreign policy to imagine a world without an alliance with Saudi Arabia. Uh, Senator Schumer also yesterday said we're looking at all legislative tools to deal with this. Uh, he called this an appalling and deeply cynical action. Uh, and he said one of the things they would consider is called the NOPEC bill, uh, which is uh, stands for no, no Oil Producing or Exporting Cartels bill. And that was, uh, you know, that's a bill that's been debated for decades now, but it did pass the Judiciary Committee in the Senate uh, earlier this year. Uh, now, there, and this, what this bill would do is change U.S. antitrust law to revoke the sovereign immunity that has long protected OPEC right. and, its, and its, you know, its national oil companies from, from lawsuits. Now, when this picked up steam about three years ago, Saudi Arabia did threaten to sell its oil and currencies other than the dollar if we did pass the OPEC bill, which, as you know, would undermine the dollar status as the world's main reserve currency and reduce you know, our clout in global trade and our ability to implement uh, sanctions. Now, the administration so far you know, is, is saying that they want to be aggressive, but they're saying they want Congress to take the lead. Uh, they want to see what Congress can pass, and then they say they're going to go from there. I'm not sure Congress can pass anything, but that's something, again, that will uh, crowd out, I think, uh, work that needs to be done on the omnibus and the NDAA. Dove, uh, I want to bring you into this uh, conversation. You wrote a piece uh, in The Hill, Fist Bumps Don't Erase uh, Memories, obviously the president under uh, fire. And, you know, several folks have mentioned that it looks like the former president uh, and his team might have played a little bit of a hand in, 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 in this uh, as well. Um, a lot of anger di directed uh, at um you know, OPEC countries uh, in, in general, but most of the are directed at the at the Saudis. The Saudis attitude towards it appears to be as brazen as you would expect, um, you know, pretty much brushing off. If, if you don't sell us arms, we'll go and buy them from the Russians. 
Um, and as a friend of mine put it to me, Fago, we, we should stop threatening them because, you know, it doesn't matter whether they hack up a journalist or do whatever. I mean, ultimately, we're not going to do anything uh, to them. So it's actually better if we just sort of don't complain about it. Um, and your piece discusses it from their perspective. From a Washington perspective, it's a very unruly and occasionally very counterproductive ally uh, or partner. What's the most reasonable way for the United States to respond? Because my view is, if you're going to do nothing or it's impotent, just don't do it. Clearly, a lot of this has to do with uh, the crown prince. Um, you know, until he took power, we we had different differences with with the Saudis, obviously, um, but never to this extent. Uh, there are there are really uh, guardrails on both sides. Um, you know, if you go with Malinowski, who's got a history of, of you know, he was uh, the head of Human Rights Watch. Uh, he's concerned about human rights. It's kind of a Jimmy Carter kind of approach to international affairs. And if you pull out of Saudi Arabia, what you're essentially doing is opening the door to the Iranians because he wants us to take everything out. And that really doesn't make much sense. And I think what also doesn't make much sense is to simply downgrade the importance of the Middle East. Like it or not, I mean, it's a very unstable place. And if we bail out of there, it's just going to be more unstable. So that's not going to work. From the Saudi perspective, uh, you know, I think the arguments that people have made is that the Saudis, you know, go buy Russian stuff. Well, obviously, it's not going to help them very much, um, but they could get even closer to the Chinese, which is a problem for us. So we've got to be sort of tempered about how we deal with this thing. Uh, clearly, we can't sit on our hands and do nothing. That doesn't make much sense. And uh, ultimately, I think it will hurt the OPEC folks, because if they drive the rest of the world into a, an even deeper recession, then oil oil's not going to be sold the way it's been so being sold now and and their prices are going to go down anyway but that's in the longer run in the short run uh it's not enough simply to say i'm going to hand it over to congress number one number two is uh if you're gonna hand it to congress then work on some of the arms sales rather than saying we're getting out of there and we're just overthrowing all the marbles um, we've got to just be a lot more strategic about what we, how we want to think about the region, how we want to think about the crown prince in Saudi Arabia. I don't even know that Trump, and I'm no fan of Trump's, I think that's well known. I don't think Trump and his, and his minions had to push the crown prince. There's a long record of good relations between Republicans and the Saudis. It goes back to George H.W. Bush, if not before. There's a long record of tension between the Saudis and the Democrats. That goes back to Jimmy Carter. So there's a lot there. Uh, but clearly, the crown prince has ramped it up, and we can't just sit on our hands. But at the same time, we can't just walk away. Obviously, this is not the first time that foreign right and, and the Saudis, uh, you know, did uh, work hard uh, to influence the election in 2016. Their disdain for Barack Obama uh, was known and, and went beyond, you know, mere policy uh, dif uh, differences. Uh, unfortunately, there was an unfortunate racial component to that animosity. Um, ultimately, oh, but, 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 but let's be fair. I mean, the Israelis were doing the exact same thing. I mean, they may not have been interfering the way the Russians did, 
but uh, the Saudis and the Israelis were exactly on the but, same but, page. Oh, no, no, it, it, and it, it wasn't it, just racial. Come on. It was Obama. No, no, no. I, I, I said there was. No, hang was, on a minute. It was Obama cutting a deal with the Iranians behind Israel's back, other than what the Israelis found out through their intelligence, behind the Saudis' back, behind the Emiratis' back. What do you expect? I, I'm, I'm saying, I, I said that there were legitimate policy differences. I said that there were other components to that animosity from, from all of those countries. My question is this, what is, you know, reasonably does, you know, there, uh, you know, the, clearly OPEC uh, has cast its lot with the plus uh, with Russia. Uh, it is a haven. Uh, you know, a lot of the countries in the region are being a haven uh, for Russians, uh, Russian oligarchs, their yachts and their money. Ultimately, is that a vehicle uh, that the United States should push? Because the United States has a tendency of looking away when it's convenient for the United States to look away. When it's not convenient for the United States to look away, the United States can focus on this and make life difficult. The United States put an enormous amount of pressure on the uh, Swiss. You were part of, uh, you were in government at the time after 9-11, repeatedly to the point where now the, the, the Swiss actually do share their banking information with the United States and in fact did uh, act against Russians. Ultimately, is is that a lever Washington can use in a more targeted fashion, for example, against against Saudis, Saudis' interests, Saudi money, and then tie this to the Ukraine crisis? Absolutely. I mean, the key is to tie it to the Ukraine crisis and essentially tell the Saudis, anything you do that helps the Russians is going to rebound against you. And that is going to be something that will make it harder for the Saudis, say, to try to replace the dollar as as the currency that they uh, sell oil in or to do much else. We can say to them, we're going to suspend sales to you uh, of our equipment until you break with the Russians. We can say we're going to suspend sales until you turn over all those yachts. I mean, there's stuff we can do, but it has to be linked to the Russians and not made some kind of permanent thing. We're essentially breaking with the Saudis. Breaking with the Saudis is not a good way of maintaining your position in the Middle East. But I feel, unfortunately, that their actions are actually causing everybody to break with them. And I, I think that they're sort of missing that because even European friends are expressing a degree of anger and frustration that I think may be somewhat more lasting uh, than uh, they think. And by the way, as for the threat, I'll buy Russian systems. My point would be, wow, they've performed so well. Please be my guest. Uh, why don't you fill your arsenal uh, with with more Russian crap. Well, that, um, that's why I said to suspend our sales. Yeah, let them go buy the Russian. They're, they're not going to do that. Uh, they might um, buy Chinese, but they won't buy Russians. But in any event, it has to be there has to be a time factor here. In other words, you you as long as you continue to support Russia, we're going to hit back at you. Back off Russia, we'll back off you. Uh, in, indeed. Jim, uh, I want to bring you uh, into this, uh, right? I mean, a, a lot of news, obviously, the Ukrainian advances, uh, the U.S. decision uh, not to send ATACMs. That's something that's been bandied around. And we're, White House is almost ready to do it. Uh, well, now it's not really necessary. And we're worried about Armageddon. We're worried about World War Three. Uh, oh, the nuclear rhetoric. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, anytime I hear talk like that, I get worried that folks uh, in Washington are getting weak at the very time that we should stay strong on this. Putin is counting on his rhetoric to sort of unbalance this. But just real quickly, to, to start with the continuation of the OPEC decision, which obviously impacts our European allies and partners at a time when they're in desperate need, Norway stepping up, 
uh, obviously, and producing a lot more energy. Everybody's trying to do it. France is accelerating work on its reactors uh, as, as well, because it is a very important power exporter. This, the Swedes have been filling up, filling some of the power needs that have been left void by uh, the, the French kind of you know, any, anything you want to say about this whole, you know, OPEC dynamic and European security before we get to the Ukraine discussion? Sure. I, I think in terms of the OPEC decision, um, you know, obviously the Europeans are not happy about that either. And I think in, in a lot of ways, uh, Europe uh, leaves that OPEC-US relationship within the Middle East and with Saudi. I think they kind of leave that up to us in a lot of ways. They've got um, other, you know, unfortunately, I mean, they 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 uh, depended too much on Moscow. That was kind of the axis they were looking at in terms of energy was Russian gas uh, working that. Uh, and uh, and now, uh, of course, uh, they're pay paying a price for that uh, with in terms of that dependency on Russia and also with OPEC. Uh, that's blowing up in their face, too. But there is quite a scramble, as you point out, in Europe to diversify as fast as they can, um, and you know the nuclear the, the 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 nuclear debate in Germany has been interesting over nuclear power. France, there is no but debate. They're gonna they work in the reactors, but finding other sources and dealing with the the big profits being made by Norway, U.S. as well. They're all trying to work that too. So when it comes to energy and to Europe, there's a lot of things on their plate that they're having to deal with. Uh, and uh, this now OPEC has just added something else. So, uh, so that's so so that's something that uh, the European nations talked about yesterday, and I think today as well. They had the first meeting of this uh, political, uh, you know, the political leadership uh, meeting, uh, heads of state and government talking just about European politics uh, or or policy rather. Uh, so uh, that was certainly on the agenda too. So, uh, so. So for Europe, when it comes to energy, they're distracted and they're going in a lot of different directions. But what they're not doing, and this gets us to this Armageddon uh, point uh, that, that you were making about what the, the president said, uh, they're not, they're, we're not seeing a, a weakening in terms of dealing with Russia because of energy. Uh, the OPEC point has made it harder. Uh, but uh, I don't see um, I don't see there becoming a, a weakening, whether it's in Washington or in Europe in terms of dealing with Russia. The Armageddon point that, uh, that, um, that Biden made, I, I think there's a lot of, there's not a lot of, uh, the, the, uh, there's not a lot to worry about there. We, we all know uh, that we're dealing with a nuclear situation here, a card being played that we haven't seen played in a long time. I would say that the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis was much worse uh, than right. what we're seeing now. And so I think people make comparisons there. I think they're wrong. I think Biden has a tendency to speak in, in superlatives. And so he was saying this at a fundraiser. You know, he wasn't saying this on, on, on a, uh, an address to the American people on television. He was saying and he just said, you know, he was just being Biden in a lot of ways. So he didn't say something new there. Uh, and uh, and we can have a whole session on uh, the scenarios. Uh, right. So how do you react to that, et cetera, et cetera. But I think at the end of the day, that that comment didn't worry me. And I don't see Washington being worried by that comment and, and people wringing their hands here. I don't see that happening in Europe either. I, I think we're going to move on uh, to other things uh, tomorrow. Uh, so um, so that just some thoughts there. Um, I when it when it comes to uh, the Ukrainian progress and the Atakums, uh decision, I mean, one of 
Uh, well, I mean, one, it, it is it is it is great. Anybody who wants uh, believes in democracy wants uh, Ukrainians to liberate all of their territory. Uh, and indeed, I'm one of the people who believes that they should liberate their territory to whatever their borders were pre 2014. Um, you know, the Russian annexation decision obviously was was a was a uh, an, an ability for the Russians to try to justify. Right. I mean, move move the border and say, I can go nuclear or do whatever else because this is now Russian territory. Putin is under an enormous amount of fire. You said that uh, everybody is standing strong. That's great. Um, again, I mean, but you do hear, you know, I, whenever I hear an intelligence leak that Ukrainian officials were involved in the approval of the Dugina assassination, you know, I, I always think that there's messaging involved in this, right? Washington is always messaging one way or another, officially or unofficially. What was the purpose of that disclosure, for example, in uh, you know, I mean, in a sense, it's not nothing, you know, it's something that everybody knew, knows that the Ukrainians likely were involved, although I love the Ukrainian line, this was interspecies warfare. The way it was uh, reported was that Ukrainian authorities were involved in the approval. I don't know what, what, what that means, right? But what, what, what was, what, you're a longtime Washington observer. I mean, what, well, did, what did that disclosure mean? You know, you usually think? when Usually when there is a disclosure to signal, you know, something is leaked, a targeted leak, you know, um, usually it, it is something that has a bigger impact. Uh, you know, it's the timing of it, what it is that's released. It makes a headline the next day in the Washington Post or it's talked about, you know, in Politico or whatever. Uh, and so this, I, I don't, don't see a whole lot of impact on, on this. I, I, from, again, I, I, I'm not tracking this that closely, but I am social media, in the press, phone, from phone calls I get from media, which is almost every day. Um, you know, I have not heard this pop up once. I think you're right. the only person I've heard to, to raise this. So I think if, if there was some messaging that the administration was doing or Ukraine was doing or anyone was doing, I'm not sure it hit the target because it's not a whole lot of headlines out there, right. at least I've seen. Thanks very much. And it's it's great. And I'm not trying to make a mountain out of a molehill. And I appreciate uh, the point you're making that anytime the president talks about the need to avoid World War Three or makes a comment, you know, and every time Putin says something, we in the press sometimes tend to get very overheated about that. Uh, you know, is nuclear war coming? And if you're you know, an average person on the street, you'd be like, oh, my God. Yeah. You know, so you putting into perspective uh, was was very, very helpful. Um, Patrick, uh, you've been very patient. A lot of stuff going on in Asia, uh, obviously. Uh, Dove, I just want to give you an, an opportunity. I mean, do you want to weigh in on this uh, at all very briefly before we get to the Asia portion of the conversation? Well, I, I totally agree with Jim. I mean, Biden says things offhand. Uh, We've got that all the time. You said Putin, maybe the Saudi, you said he'll buy from the Russians, the same kind of thing. Everybody gets all excited about it. By the way, I think the administration will sell ATACMs to Ukraine, but they're acting the way they always act. They just take forever to get around to doing the right thing. Uh, and uh, what do you think? Uh, what do you think is next in, in the conflict? And very quickly, you too, Jim. Well, the Ukrainians uh, are pressing ahead. Morale is sky high there. Morale is down in the dirt on the Russian side. The new recruits aren't going to make any difference. They're going to start getting shot at. A lot of them are going to run away. Uh, we just keep seeing more and more Russians going anywhere just to get out of Russia. I think that tells you all you need to know. Just to, just to jump in, number one, I agree at absolutely on attackums with, with what uh, Dove just said. I think we will provide attackums. This administration does like to wring its hands. <laughs> 
<laughs> over the littlest thing. Now, this is a big thing, of course, but I think I think eventually we'll get there. I just wish we'd hurry. Number that's number one. Number two, in terms of the way ahead, um, I guess on the one hand, uh, I, I, I it, the you know the news coming out about the state of those Russian. Uh, forces that are coming in, particularly the reservists that are coming in and, and some of the morale stuff there. I'm, I'm hearing some just, it's not in the press, but I'm hearing from contacts, just some incredible things about how poor these Russian forces are. And so I, and I'm glad to hear, you know, that's great. Uh, but uh, I just hope we just don't get overly optimistic on things. Uh, Russia has a chance to surprise us. And I'm not saying, well, you, you know, Russia is, is going to win. Ukraine can never, will never win, et cetera, et cetera. Ukraine might very well win, but for God's sake, uh, let's take advantage as best we can of all the opportunities coming our way. Let's get them, attack them. So let's keep, you know, the U.S. support to Ukraine. Uh, but, but whether you're Ukraine or you're here in the West, for God's sake, let's stay focused on the mission and not get over optimistic about things. I, uh, but again, I'm, the stuff you're hearing about these reservists uh, coming in, just you can't. I'm, I'm just shocked about how poor the Russian forces are. But given that, OK, let's keep moving forward and not feel that we can relax. Um, it, it is still a nation of almost 150 million people, right, going up against the nation of four, that was 44 million before uh, there was so uh, such a large uh, exodus. Uh, from the country, obviously, uh, stressing uh, nations uh, all, all up and down the border. Patrick, you have been very, very patient. Uh, very, very big week uh, in Asia as well. Sorry for uh, using an adjective twice back to back. Um, we had the missile test. You joined us uh, earlier in the week uh, to talk a little bit about that with Mark Montgomery as well about how um, everybody's got to respond to it. North Korea fired off a couple of more missiles. Uh, United States in the midst of very important exercises. Uh, the administration is sh uh, sh showing solidarity with South Korea, ATACMS, which is uh, the Army tactical uh, missile, very, very accurate battlefield uh, weapon. Um, you know, walk, walk us through what, uh, you know, the, the, the episode in the first place for those who may have missed uh, the Tuesday program, uh, the significance of it, the significance of the tests since, and then the Allied response uh, to them and what they signal about what to expect next from Pyongyang and, and Seoul, for that matter. Well, Bogo, there have been enough fireworks in Northeast Asia this past couple of weeks to remind the world, if they didn't already know, that uh, there's more than one military theater of action right now. Yeah, there's a hot war in Ukraine because of Russia's aggression, but there could easily quickly be a conflict around the Korean Peninsula. Um, North Korea has been engaged in a missile campaign this year to refine both its short range and intermediate range missiles in particular, firing more than a missile a week so far this year. Um, and most spectacularly uh, this past week, firing the uh, Hwasong-12 intermediate range ballistic missile that can hit Guam uh, over uh, Amori Prefecture um, off the uh, main island of Honshu just before, uh, just south of Hokkaido. This is only the seventh time there's been some kind of a missile or space uh, launch over Japanese territory since 1998. Um, and uh, so it's rare in the last last two were both in 2017. So clearly there was an escalation uh, both of intent and also of attempting to try to uh, maybe perfect reentry vehicles or otherwise improve the IRBM, which uh, I think North Korea th thinks is essential to deterring American intervention in the future um, because they're working on hypersonic capabilities for all their missiles. 
with the short range missiles and the intermediate range missiles, and they've already got in their pocket the ICBM that they said to uh, have succeeded in completing in 2017, you know, all of those things put together, they think they've got a pretty good survival strategy uh, and anti-intervention strategy right now uh, being built at the moment. In response to this missile test, though, there were immediate uh, coordinated bilateral exercises and kudos to the administration for having those ready to go. Um, you know, both the U.S., South Korea, uh, U.S., Japan, they coordinated a ballistic missile defense tests. They also, in the case of the U.S., South Korea, they they had the uh, missile launches where the ATACMs, four ATACMs uh, were fired successfully. The South Korean Hyunwoo-2C, a short-range ballistic missile, which can cover all of North Korea, actually failed, and it, and it fell only seven football fields away from a, a residence. Uh, and that's created a lot of political fallout in inside South Korea. This just is a reminder that I'm all for arming the Ukrainians, but those ATACMs are needed as well uh, in Northeast Asia, um, where you want to demonstrate that we do have missiles to, that can fire back, uh, especially if the Hyunwoo-2C is going to fail, uh, which was rare. I think it, I think the uh, South Koreans will, will fix that uh, very quickly. But there were also simulated precision airstrikes in the Yellow Sea. They conducted anti-submarine warfare exercises. Um, Indo-PACOM Commander Aquilino was with Defense Minister uh, Lee Jong-soop uh, today in Seoul. Uh, and then the North Koreans scrambled. They sent in a fighter formation of, of four bombers and eight fighters to approach the, uh, the demilitarized zone. They stayed outside of the agreed area of a buffer zone, but nonetheless, they were approaching it. And that prompted the South Koreans to scramble 30 aircraft, including F-15K. So a lot of military uh, posturing uh, to go on both before and after this IRBM test. The significance is that North Korea is, again, going to build up a more capable, diverse um, missile capability. They're going to have a seventh nuclear test you know, as early as Sunday night, but by the end of this year. Um, and they're going to keep building those capabilities. What they're not going to be able to do, though, is slow down alliance cooperation. Great discussion between President Yoon, uh, uh, Prime Minister Yoon, uh, President Yoon, and Prime Minister Kishida uh, yesterday for 25 minutes uh, about strengthening this relationship even more. So thank you, Kim Jong Un, for strengthening our two key allies. U.S. is going to continue to to press down on uh, cooperating with both of those Northeast Asian allies and others. Um, and what North Korea lacks is the high technology to really compete with these three democracies, militaries, uh, if we get our act together, because they cannot fight the intelligentized warfare that China likes to talk about and is actually pursuing uh, very assiduously. Um, they can't compete with this uh, kind of uh, raw capability that we have. So they're deterred from using their forces, but we can't stop them from building them up. So Kim Jong-un, as I said earlier this week, is kind of winning the diplomatic game of saying, I'm a permanent nuclear weapons state. You can't do anything about it. And we're trying to say we want denuclearization of the peninsula. We really can't achieve that goal. So we're in a stalemate of diplomacy, but we are at least keeping North Korea firmly de de deterred from action. Um, let me let me uh, take uh, the conversation uh, to bring China into the discussion as well. Uh, Patrick, obviously, Xi Jinping is marching toward his coronation. Um, but Russia and China both demonstrated how obstructionist uh, they can be. Some of their statements in the Security Council was, were literally out of the Cold War uh, in terms of the revisionism, uh, you know, about how somehow they're the aggressors and North Koreans, uh, the noble people of North Korea are being put upon by these aggressors uh, that are uh, surrounding it. 
how is what do you, what do you are you noticing anything different about uh, both uh, Chinese and indeed even Russian rhetoric uh, surrounding uh, surrounding this? Because obviously Moscow owns owes Pyongyang big time, right? I mean, it, it has military trainers. I'm not sure that's helping them at all, but certainly having more rockets being millions more rockets being supplied by the North Koreans help. How how is the the rhetoric, especially from Beijing, changing? And what does this tell us, uh, if anything? Uh, as 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 the 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 march down again to the to the coronation uh, moves ahead in Beijing. Yeah, I mean the twentieth Party Congress begins on the sixteenth, and China is so focused on that uh, internally as you might expect. What we do see is the United Nations was over two this week. Um, they not only uh, failed to condemn North Korea for the overflight of a IRBM over Japan, but then the uh, UN Human Rights Commission um, also failed to allow debate over Xinjiang um, human rights abuses. And China's trumpeting that in their in their press uh, about, oh, we, we fought back American coercion. Um, you know, that's not a good record, not a good week for the United Nations. Um, if you're not able to talk about human rights abuses and you don't even condemn an unlawful missile test that flies over Japan without any warning uh, and leads them into uh, alert status. So um, what China's doing though on strategy may be a completely different thing. I think there are two things that we're not seeing uh, up front. One of them is that the Chinese have to be thinking their salami slicing gray zone approach to dominating the region is much smarter than the smash grab, you know, retreat and regret of Putin. Um, and I think they're, they're trying still to keep some distance from Putin, but they don't want to let him uh, fail. Um, and they certainly want to work with Russia and they're buying more energy as a result of, you know, um, of, of these issues um, in the dispute. And they're not really eager to cooperate with us on anything, whether it's North Korea or Taiwan, I mean, or, or Russia and Ukraine uh, because of the Taiwan issue, because of technology. So China's, you know, moving in its own direction right now. Russia's cornered and, and may be dangerous, uh, or at least for Putin, he's in a dangerous period. North Korea feels liberated by this major power competition, as I've talked about, and and Iran presumably would too if they didn't have more domestic uh, tumult at the moment, which may be uh, causing them even to uh, to kind of throw out an olive branch about uh, you know the the uh, the failed nuclear agreement um, being still possible. Um, let me. Uh, I'm going to go to uh, the nuclear agreement, and indeed, I mean that was as as Dove. Uh, put it a uh, source of some of the tension uh, among uh, the United States and its allies uh, and and partners. But really quickly, uh, OPEC Plus's decision also has implications across Asia. How is this news being greeted uh, by Asia uh, uh, Pacific allies and partners? And is there an opportunity for actually everybody to work together to put pressure on the? You know, I mean, hey, if you're Mohammed bin Salman, you're feeling your oats and you're thinking you're you're you know mighty and everybody needs you more than you need them. But ultimately, if everybody in the world gangs up against you, it, it can be a, a difficult period for you. How are uh, nations uh, in the Asia Pacific responding to this? And, and what are they likely to do about it? Well, this is where uh, alliance cooperation is not that cohesive. Um, you know, the problem in Asia is that everybody needs uh, energy for economic growth. They don't care what kind of energy. So, you know, we, we want to pursue um, uh, slowing down climate change, but frankly, whatever whatever it takes to keep the economy going first. Um, and that, that approach divides the United States from some of the Asian countries. And then you've got countries um, like uh, South Korea, a staunch ally, 
um, where we're cooperating on a lot of the technology. We've got the CEO of Applied Materials, you know, in Seoul, just as we've got the CEO of Google in Japan, uh, both of them making major new investments uh, in high technology. That's going well overall. But on the energy side, uh, the fact that President Yoon uh, has such low approval ratings inside Korea, hovering around 30%, is, a, is is partly attributed to the fact that uh, they don't want an economic alliance, uh, whether it's over dealing with Russia or China, um, that undermines South Korean economic growth. And I think that's mirrored in other ways throughout the Indo-Pacific, countries that just do not want to be penalized. You see this from India as well, where India's really uh, been uh, much more full-throated uh, in terms of supporting some restraint on dealing with Russia because they want to protect not only that Russian pole in the multipolar world, they, they look at that as sort of the way the Gulf did the Iran-Iraq war. Um, you know, if you take down Iraq, it leaves Iran stronger. If you take down Russia, it leaves China stronger from an Indian perspective. Um, that's too absolute, of course. It's not that simple. But the point is that other countries um, want this sort of many actors and, and deal with their economy first and not have their security interests sacrificed over these issues. So the energy issue is a tough issue for all of us to deal with uh, as we try to grapple with this. And the administration so far talking about you know more strategic reserve release, that doesn't go very far. So we don't really have a good answer to this. This is going to be a tough winner. We better hope that it's a mild one. Uh, well said. Patrick, New York Times reporting uh, Biden administration clamps down on China's access to chip technology, obviously an emerging trend. Uh, give us your uh, quick take before we part for the week. Bago, the Biden administration is using export control policy um, and other supply chain measures to prevent China from flooding the market with unfairly subsidized semiconductors and other technologies. We're in a techno-nationalist competition. This is the long-term competition that's going on. Read Chris Miller's Chip War, the fight for the world's most critical technology that just emerged this week. In fact, you should have him on the program because it explains well exactly what where this fits. Um, the semiconductors are being made mostly in Asia, mostly in Taiwan. And the U.S. is trying to deepen its ties to its high-tech partners like Japan, Korea, and Australia, as well as in Europe, to diversify and have resilience and supply chain security in these critical computing power uh, semiconductor chips. Um, it's the complex systems. It's not just the chips, but China is um, now going to find more roadblocks in its way as it tries to uh, catch up with the United States and surpass it on high technology. Uh, and indeed, Taiwan, an important part of that ecosystem uh, as well. Uh, Dove, um, you know, you, you mentioned uh, the Iran uh, nuclear agreement. The demonstrations are continuing in Iran. They're actually spreading. Uh, the government is doing, you know, pulling its its card of, you know, crack down even more brutally. Uh, the bottom line is that that actually tends to make things worse. And it appears in this particular case, the university students aren't going back to their dorms. People are cutting their hair short. They're taking their hijabs off. Um, there was uh, another uh, young woman uh, who was killed, authorities, uh, in, you know, by uh, uh, police. Um, uh, the authorities say she fell out a window. Um, there were also a lot of Russian oligarchs who appear to be jumping out of windows, too. Um, you know, where, where are we going in terms of those demonstrations? And what does it mean uh, regarding the nuclear deal, right? I mean, the Obama administration was looking at that as a way to address the danger of Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the Emirates starting a war that the United States would have to finish sort of a fourth Muslim war or third Muslim war at the time uh, that they didn't want to do, even if people were unhappy with the contours of the arrangement. Talk to us about Iran, what you think, 
is next and what it means. And then at what point does the administration just have to pull the plug? Uh, because, I mean, even the negotiators, as you've noted several times, I mean, even the negotiators and Jim, so have you, the negotiators themselves are bewildered. Like, like what the hell is it we're trying to accomplish here at this point? Go ahead. Well, the administration doesn't have to pull the plug. It just simply has to not do very much, which is where things are right now. Um, for the real issue becomes, does Biden cut the deal after the elections uh, in spite of everything that's going on? Uh, there may be people in uh, in his immediate circle. who And, and cut the deal, you mean make a new deal, not make, like get rid of the deal? Well, not get rid of the deal. No, on the contrary, sign the deal. Um, Correct. There right. are going to okay. be people. They're going to be people around him who will urge him to do that. I don't think Biden will do it. I mean, uh, he he is not going to sign a deal as you know, while there are these demonstrations going on. And I don't think they're going to stop anytime soon. It's clear that no matter how many people the uh, uh, government, uh, military and, and the uh, Revolutionary Guard want to shoot and kill, they're continuing to demonstrate. Uh, it's starting to look like the fall of the Shah. Not yet, but it's looking more and more like that than anything that has taken place since the Shah fell. Uh, you've got a, a, an older supreme leader who is really pretty much isolated. You've got a revolutionary guard that is terrified uh, that it'll lose all the control it's got, the economic control, the political control, obviously the military control. But you know, if this keeps going on, uh, you know, the Shah had Savak, it had, he had the military, uh, it didn't help him. So this could change. Certainly, as long as it goes on, I can't see Biden, whatever his advisors might tell him, and you know, so many of them actually made the, uh, or uh, brought about the original deal under Obama, whatever they tell him, I just don't think Biden's going to do it. And as you say, even the Europeans are beginning to wonder, you know, why should we do this thing? Because after all said and done, human rights is very, very important in Europe. And if you want to talk about abuse of human rights, the Iranians make the Saudis look like angels. And uh, let me just uh, pull on that thread for one second. I mean, the reason we did this deal was a concern about Iran going nuclear. The intention was, hey, if we open up, we give the Iranians an opportunity. They could be bad guys, but they don't del deliver a nuclear weapon. That it, it, uh, addresses the Israeli uh, concern as well as uh, the Gulf concerns. Um, ultimately, what do we need to do next? Because the Iran nu nuclear program, I'm sorry, since the deal was undone, has accelerated. So we are where we are. What is the net? What what? Rather than worrying about reviving, you know, a deal that had a purpose that was then derailed and has now outgrown its purpose. What is the next step on how to be containing Iran's nuclear ambitions? Well, uh, in a sense, Iran is go is going to go nuclear. It's it's clear. Even if they sign this deal, uh, the sunset provisions are coming are, are moving coming up so quickly. The first ones in a right. year and a half. Uh, that it doesn't really mean very much anyway. Um, the assumption, I think, in the region is that they're, they're going to be a nuclear power. They're going to be an undeclared nuclear power, just the Israelis are, are. And the Israelis can deter that. The real problem with Iran, quite frankly, isn't their nuclear capability. It's their ability to fund all these terrorists, uh, the Houthis, the Hezbollahs, the the, uh, the, the, the Hamases. The, that's the problem. And that's right. where we should focus. 
and uh, the one thing we can do and uh, hopefully get more of the Europeans to do is to maintain sanctions until they're ready to sit down and talk about their regional role, which is really at the heart of the problem. Guys, thanks so very much for joining us. It's always an honor and pleasure having you guys on the program. Really appreciate it. Hope everybody has uh, a great day, a great weekend, and a great week, and look forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks so much.